Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. This is the Highland Lawn Cemetery in Terre Haute, Indiana. Begun in 1893, Highland Lawn is the resting place for many of the early pioneer families of Terre Haute. On these stones are written the names of some of the most famous families in Terre Haute. Names such as Rose, Deming, Debs, and Swope. A cemetery is a place where we lay our loved ones to rest and give our final goodbyes to people who have held important space in our lives. There is another type of cemetery, not acreage, but a relational cemetery, a relationship graveyard for friends who are no longer friends. So let's talk. Let's have a conversation about the friendships that we bury and how becoming a follower of Jesus will radically affect your relational cemetery. So in the fall of 2003, I broke my pinky finger. It was fall ball, and I love to play fall ball, and in 2003, we had a pretty good team, and I was still uh, spry enough, young enough, that they let me play shortstop, and um, we were one game away from the championship. I was playing shortstop. If we won this game the following week, we would be in the, we would be able to play for a championship, and I'm at shortstop, and this guy comes up. He's a really good player. He turns on a ball, hits it right at me. It, it's going to bounce one time, and it's hit really hard, okay? So it's like split second, you got to be able to catch this ball. And probably a testament to how my reflexes were starting to go away from me a little bit. There was a time I would have probably fielded that, no problem, but I just didn't get my glove to it in time. So as I raised my glove to catch it, it caught my glove on the very end and compressed my glove, and got to my finger, and compressed my finger, and I brought an x-ray to show you what my finger looks like on the inside. Now, so to explain this to you, the bone that comes up from the bottom and the little ball on it, see the mushroom that is around that? Yeah, it's not supposed to look like that. It's not supposed to be nearly that fat and mushroomed, and so what happened was it just jammed it down on that ball, and it it mushroomed out, and so we won that game. You know what that means, right? Another game, and Brett didn't go to the doctor, because if I go to the doctor, they're going to put my finger in a splint, and if my finger's in a splint, I can't wear a glove, and if I can't wear a glove, I can't play in the game. Yeah, I acted like I was 12, I know. So I didn't go to the doctor, And we, I played the next week. I played the rest of that game. And I remember every time they would throw the ball in from the outfield and I would catch it, it would just like hurt like crazy. Um, the following week too, but we won. Uh, we won the championship. Yay, rah, go cross lane. And Brett has a broken finger. In May of 2004, let that just sink in. This happened in October 2003. In May 2004, Brett, the idiot, decides to go to the doctor to have him look at the finger. 
only for him to take x-rays, put that up on the screen and say, yeah, you see that? And I said, yeah. He said, might want to get to me sooner. Because I can't do anything for you. Your finger's going to be like this for the rest of your life. So now I can't close my fist all the way. And for those of you who don't know, I've told you this before. This is a full-service church. I'm a full-service pastor. I'm trying to help you with life. Let me explain to you what your pinky does. Your pinky holds change and keeps it from falling out of your hand. So when I go through the drive-thru and they put change in my hand, I have to pull my hand all the way in the car door and then go like that because if I do this, all the change falls out on the ground. That's what your pinky's for. It's to hold change, and mine is forever mangled. It, and so you can't, I'm sure you can't see it from there, but if you were to look up on it, it's it, that knot that you see is reflected in my pinky finger. So why do I tell you that? I tell you that to say this. There are certain things you do when you break a finger that will aid in the healing process of the finger, and there are certain things you do that will hurt the healing process of the finger. Today, we're not talking about broken fingers, we're talking about broken relationships that get fractured because somebody did something wrong. Someone lies to you, or about you, or cheats you, or takes something that belongs to you, or gossips about you, and now what you have is a fractured friendship. We're going to begin today with a teaching of Jesus that is easy to understand, but I caution you, it is very, very hard to do. And I'm just, I, I want to add to that, um, I've heard this talked about before, I've heard this talked about in not the best of ways, and I've heard this passage mistaught before. Uh, I don't want to do that this morning. There's going to be a nuance in, in the passage that we look at today that I want to make sure that we clearly delineate so that you know what to do and what not to do, because there's, there's some things, I've heard people take this passage and, and stretch this to places that it's not meant to go. I don't want to do that this morning, but if you've got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, I know many of you carry your Bibles, that makes me very happy that you bring your Bible to church, I love to hear the pages turn, I love to know you're taking notes, some of you come up and tell me when I preach the same sermon more than once, because you wrote notes and you made a note and said he preached that in 2012 and I caught him. And yes, if you write that in your Bible, you will catch me preaching the same thing over again, I promise you. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to look at verse 15, and uh, I'm going to take you somewhere else in a minute to Ephesians, but you don't need to turn there. I just want you to stay in, in Matthew 18 and hear those pages turning. That's awesome. Some of you do it on your phone. That's cool too. I have no problem with that. I think that's great. Um, Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, and we more accurately could put in there, if your brother or sister sins against you, okay, that probably should be translated that way, sins against you, lies about you, gossips about you, cheats you, Jesus says, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples, not the big crowd, the small crowd, just the 12. And he's saying, if you're going to become a part of the Jesus movement and another person in the Jesus community wrongs you, there are certain things that you can do to get that healed and there are certain things you can do to make that worse. One of the things I want you to notice about this passage is that Jesus actually addresses this topic. 
He's with his disciples, and he says, if one brother or sister sins against you, here's what you need to do. It's just very interesting that Jesus saw this as a possibility. Jesus saw that not everybody around you would behave all the time. In the Jesus community, can you imagine that? Not everybody will behave all the time. I have a map that I want to show you this morning. You're going to see at the bottom of the map the city of Jerusalem. It's in the bottom uh, section. And then uh, what I would tell you about Jerusalem is that this is where the crucifixion takes place. It's where the early church really takes root. Uh, The disciples begin to teach. The Jesus movement is born. About 30 years later, this, this central hub of Christianity is not Jerusalem. It's up around Ephesus. And uh, Ephesus was a major trade center. It was along the Aegean coastline. A lot of boats came in and out, a lot of languages spoken, a lot of trade. Um, Big city, a lot of different religions going on. And Paul is the guy that started the church at Ephesus, and he finds himself, after he started that church, he needs to write a letter back to them to encourage them and instruct that group of believers. And it is, in your Bible, it is what we call the letter to the Ephesians. The letter to the Ephesians is six chapters long. And what's interesting is that in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul does not tell us to do anything. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul simply tells us to remember who we are. Remember who you are. The fact that we have been adopted into the family of God. He keeps hammering that point over and over. He talks about God's grace that's been poured out on us. How Jesus came to take our place on the cross. It's about God's love. It's about God's grace. And it is about becoming a part of the family of God. There are no commands in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then Paul gets to chapter 4, and everything changes. The conversation shifts from belonging in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to behaving in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So as you're reading what you're about to read, just remember that this is written to church people, okay? It's written to church people. Just keep that in mind. Ephesians 4, verse 25 says this. Paul writes back to the Ephesian people, therefore, this is the church, therefore, Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. This was written to church people. So apparently, there were people in church at Ephesus who had a truth-telling problem. They were lying in church. He goes on. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. This is being written to church people. Those of you who are practicing the art of pickpocket in the lobby, please cease and desist now right? So they're not only liars in the church at Ephesus, there are thieves in the church at Ephesus. He goes on, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. There were liars, thieves, and gossips in the church at Ephesus. And Paul is saying, look, that may be a part of your old life. That needs to be put away. That's not a part of the new life. But let's just understand that because people have associated themselves with Jesus does not mean that they're perfect all the time. If you're new today and you don't want to go to church because those Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites, that's all right, come join us. We could use one more, okay? You're not perfect, we're not perfect. If you walked in here expecting a perfect place, you need to walk back out because that's not us, okay? We are a bunch of jacked up people. There's no question about that. Just because they were part of the Jesus movement did not mean that every part of their life always lined up with Jesus. That's just the reality of things. So right now, inconspicuously, you could kind of lean back and glance down your row and start thinking to yourself, hmm, not all these people are going to behave. 
And some of those people are down your aisle right now, and some of those people rode to church with you this morning in your car, and some of those people might just be you. Reality check, we are a jacked up, flawed bunch of people in this room, okay? We don't always get it right. If you're new to church, you're new to us, and you walked in expecting perfection, I got news for you. We are not perfect. We're flawed. We got issues. We're trying to figure it out. And the challenge is this. Not only will there be people in any church, any Christian ministry, any camp, any parachurch organization, nonprofit, missions organization, Christian college, not only are there people who might lie, take things that don't belong to them and gossip about other people, but they might do it to you. They might hurt you. So here's the question this morning. When someone else lies to you, takes something that isn't yours, gossips about you, what are you supposed to do then? And Jesus' answer to this is, begin with two chairs. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. I would circle that or underline that if you have your Bible out and a pen ready. If they listen to you, you have won them over just between the two of you. Question, how many chairs are required for that conversation? Two chairs. Jesus basically says what you're going to do is you're going to take their black box, their wrong box, you're going to peel the lid off of it, you're going to take out a light and you're going to shine it into their wrong box and you're going to say this is what you did. And it hurt me. And if your brother or sister sins, go and point it out to them just between the two of you. Show it to them. Point it out to them what they did. And if they look at you and they say, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I had done that. I certainly didn't mean to do that. I certainly didn't mean to hurt you. Would you please forgive me? Jesus says, you have won your brother over. That's the goal. Now, I've had my wrong box open before. I've had the lid peeled off of it, and somebody shined a light into it. And I realized that what they were saying was not only applicable to them, not only had I hurt them, that probably that behavior that I was exhibiting that I didn't realize was hurting anybody might have hurt somebody else. And I immediately began to set about correcting that problem. Now, I doubt the person that came to me and pointed it out to me was was thinking about Matthew 18 when they did that. They did it because they loved me. But when they spoke to me, that's exactly what they did. They shined a light into my wrong box, and they said, Brett, you're doing this. And I'm worried about you, and I'm worried about how it's going to affect not just you, but how it's going to affect other people. Jesus said, you've won them over. You're going to help somebody move from one house to another and you've recruited a bunch of people to help you. You've recruited this one guy and everybody's going to show up at 9 o'clock and all the guys that you've recruited show up at 9 o'clock to help this family move. But one guy that you recruited, he doesn't show up at 9. It's 9.30, he's still not there. It's 10 o'clock, he's still not there. 10.15, he shows up. He works for about 25 minutes and then announces to everybody, hey, been great to be with you. I got to go. I got to take my kid to soccer practice. And he leaves. He works all of 25 minutes and then he's gone. And this isn't the first time that he's done this. 
to you. And so the challenge is to have a one-on-one meeting with him, a, a black box, wrong box meeting with him where you shine a light into his world and you say, listen, I need to show you something. I need you to understand, because you might not see it, but everybody around you sees this, you have a tendency to tell people you're going to be there at a certain time, and you're not showing up when you say you're going to show up. And you did it to me this weekend, and you've done it before. That's beside the point. This is a problem. I'm not the only one that sees this, but this is a problem. I just want you to see this, because this could affect you down the road. You could lose a job over this. You, you know, When you say you're going to do something and you don't do it, people soon begin to not believe you. And so I, I don't want that to be the case for you, so let me shine a light into your box. I don't think it looks good on you. I don't think it looks good on Jesus. Now keep in mind, this is a conversation that we have with people who are in the Jesus community. This isn't for you to go, this, this is not directed at you to, to do with someone who's not a Christian, all right? And I want you to notice something else, and this is the nuance about this that often does not get communicated when this teaching happens, is the focus is not on my wound, the focus is on their growth. Very important. Very important. Because if the focus is on your wound, you will not do this the right way. The focus cannot be on your wound. You've got to get over that. You're trying to help somebody. You're trying to help them see what's going on in their wrong box for them, not for you them. So you're going to shine a light in there and let them see so that they can correct the problem. Now, I, I you know, I, I, <laughs> nobody wants to do this. I don't want to do it. If we're going to do it, got to make sure that we're not focused in on how I've been wounded. You know, they didn't show up for this thing. They gossiped about me. All that's a secondary issue. This is about looking forward. If you can have one of these conversations and your concern for the person and their witness and Christian walk is bigger than the fact that they weren't honest with you, that they let you down, that they said something nasty about you, then you can know this, that the the beginning stages of the miracle of forgiveness have begun to happen. If you can move past your wound to a place where you care about them, then you can know something beautiful has already started to happen in your friendship and God is moving and God is at work and God is doing a miracle in your heart and in your life because he is leading you to forgiveness. So why does Jesus teach this? He's with his inner circle, his disciples, and he says, listen, brother or sister sins against you. Let's understand Jesus had some very real expectations about the flaws that are in the Jesus community. This was not new for him. He knew. He said, you go and you make it just between the two of you. You shine a light in their black box, and if they respond favorably, you have won your brother over. Why did Jesus teach this? He taught this because this is not intuitive for us. This is counterintuitive, and this is countercultural to us. So you would ask, what are some of the alternatives to the two chairs method that Jesus is talking about here? Well, let's consider them. The first one is the friends and family plan right? I'm going to talk to everybody else that isn't the person that I really need to talk to. 
The only plan that offends me more than the friends and family plan is the Facebook plan, right? I'm going to tell everybody on Facebook, but I'm not going to go to the person that actually did it. I'm so, I don't, I've just gotten where I just can't hardly look at Facebook anymore. But when I do, and I see one of those things where somebody's calling somebody else else out on Facebook, I want to scream, right? The only thing worse than that is the little cryptic thing that you put on there that says, you know, basically lets everybody know that you've been hurt, but you don't give any detail because you're encouraging somebody to call you or text you or make contact with you so that then you can then gossip about it with somebody else, okay? So all those are no good, all right? Can we agree? All those are no good. Friends and family, Facebook, none of that's good. Jesus was specific, just between the two of you. Again, that's counterintuitive. That's not the way we think. That's not the way we operate, any of us myself included. That's not how I want to operate. I'm as tempted as you are to not do that. I'm as tempted as you are to do the friends and family plan, okay? We're, like I said, we're all jacked up in here, me too. The, the second alternative is what, what I refer to as the stuffer. I'm a stuffer. My wife is a stuffer, and I'll, I'll explain why that's a problem in a minute. Um, Let me explain what a stuffer is. A stuffer, you can hurt a stuffer and never know it. You could hurt me, and I'll never let you know that you hurt me. How many of you are stuffers in the room? Let me see. How many of you are stuffers? You hurt me, and I don't let you know that you hurt me. Okay. Um, Let me, I I illustrate, whenever I do my pre-marriage counseling, we talk about this, and I always, and even in marriage counseling, I talk about this, um, this is the illustration I use. So, so an event, you know, something happens that hurts. Let's, that's, that's a cloth diaper. And let's think of a pail. So I take that cloth diaper, something hurts me, I put it in that pail. I don't say anything, I just go on, right? We just, those of us who are stuffers, we just soldier on. Head down, soldier on. I'm not hurt, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. We say that till we've got ourselves convinced, but we're really not convinced, right? I'm fine, I'm fine. That's the, that's the way of the stuffer. Another thing happens, stuff it. Another thing happens, stuff it. The diapers are starting to stack up in the pail. And here's what you need to know about me that maybe you don't need to know, but it's something that I'll just tell you. Maybe it might surprise you. I have a horrific temper that is not very often seen. I'll explain when you would see my temper. The diapers keep coming in. It stacks up. Pretty soon it stacks up. It's gone past the brim, right? It's over the rim of the, of the pail. Now it's starting to lean, and you keep putting diapers on there. Things keep happening, and then finally it all tips over, and it hits the floor. That's when you see my temper, right? And you would look at me, and you would say, Brett, you're acting like a child. Why are you doing that? You're, you're, you're acting like that because of that? No, 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 no. I'm not acting like that because, because the last thing might not have been that big, right? What am I mad about? Everything else that was in the pail, all that stuff I've been stuffing down inside. And then when that last thing hits, the, when, that, when, that, when the last thing comes and it all falls to the floor, boom! And you make a fool of yourself and you look like a child and the person that has offended you is looking at you going, really, you're that mad over that? Here's the problem. 
I, I tell people when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, and, and when I do weddings, I, about 80% of the weddings I do, I'm putting together a stuffer and a confronter, right? They kind of find each other. It's like hand and glove. The confronters used to having a stuffer that they can just yell at, and the stuffer just takes it, and the confronter is used to having somebody yell at them all the time, right? So they just, like hand and glove, they find each other. So that's going to have its issues. Then 10% I'm putting together two confronters. Here's what I know about that. That is going to be wild. That, that marriage is going to be loud. They are going to scream at one another. Do we have a couple that are two confronters that are willing to admit it? Yeah, we've got some. Yeah. And they just yell at each other all the time. And you would, you would think, you know, I would see that like, oh, no, stop yelling. No, that's actually very healthy. They're, here's what you know about two, two confronters. They're always going to know where each other are, right? There's no wiggle room. They know exactly where they are. And it's, is it loud? Yes, it's probably loud. But at the end of the day, they're probably going to work it out. Here's the one you got to look out for, the two, con- the two stuffers. Like me and Dee. We hurt each other. We don't know it. And we're walking around, and we've got this resentment thing. And, and, you know, like three days later, I'm like, babe, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. No, you're not fine. What, what diaper's about to hit the floor that I need to know about, right? Because I don't want to feel that wrath, right? I mean, so can I just tell you, and, and I'm a stuffer, okay, so I'm talking about me. Can I tell you how dishonest that is? How unhealthy that is? It's, you know, I'm a stuffer. I know I'm a stuffer, and I, I, I desperately try to work on this, but this is deeply, deeply ingrained in me. I'm sometimes too nice for my own good. And, and so if you're a stuffer, you need to understand that it's dishonest what we do, and it's not healthy for our relationship. And so to... to to just bury it like that. See, the problem is when you bury it, it's never really buried. It always comes out later, and you end up fighting over something, and you don't even realize that you're fighting over something that's really not the something you should be fighting over. Jesus is saying, look, you take care of today's issues today so that they don't resurface tomorrow. Don't stuff it. And then there's a third option, and the third option is you grab a shovel, you go into the backyard, and you bury the friendship. You just bury it, and you erect another headstone for another friend that used to be a friend that's not a friend anymore, and you cancel out the friendship. Jesus had to teach the disciples on this because there are about a hundred other things that they would rather do and that we would rather do than to do this. Brett, I want you to preach deep. I wish you'd preach deeper. I'm preaching plenty deep. We are educated far beyond our level of obedience, Right? Because we know this, we don't want to do this. Me too. We live in a broken world. We live in a world with broken relationships. There are busted up families, political sides that will not talk to one another. Churches get fractured, companies get embroiled in company politics. And I think Jesus just might say, that is not how I want things to be in my family. Jesus was looking at a, uh, for a different dynamic. He was looking for something that people would see from the outside and go, you know what, that's different than the rest of the world. The way those Christians are with each other, that's not, the rest of the world doesn't do that, and I wish they did. 
People that say, just between the two of us, I'm concerned about the person you're becoming, and I'm going to do something that's really uncomfortable, and I'm going to shine a light in here, and I know you don't like it, and this isn't about me. This is about trying to help you, but you need to see this, because this is not healthy, and it's not good. And I'm going to tell you what you did so that in hopes it will heal, and you will be able to heal some things. When you break a finger, there are things you can do to make it worse. Go to the doctor six months later. Or there are things you can do to make it better. Somebody's hearing me right now and they're thinking, okay, Brett, sometimes that works and sometimes that just doesn't work. Sometimes, you know, you, you, you haven't even pulled the lid off the box yet and you're, you haven't even turned the light on and they're like, oh, really? You're going to, oh, it's all about me. You're, oh, the, oh, so you, you're perfect, Mr. Perfect. Tell me about my little black box. So, so it's all my fault and none of it's your fault. So it's all me. Sometimes this works and sometimes it doesn't. Jesus knew that and so that's why he says, if you go to them and that person is not receptive, try a third person or maybe a fourth person, three or four chairs. Verse 16, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus would say, don't give up yet. See, before we were talking about taking a light and shining it down into the box and saying, here's what I see. Now what we're talking about is taking a box and shining a light into it and saying, here's what we see. A little more weight behind that. And here's the real miracle in all of this is that God is using a wounded person in the rescue operation. I love that. The key to all this is that you would have a greater heart for them and their future than you do for your own justice. Let me say that again. I want to make sure that hits home. The key to all this is that you would have a greater heart for them and their healing and their future than you do for making it right for you. That's the nuance in this. That's what gets lost in this. That's what people don't understand. I've heard a lot of people talk about this, but I don't ever hear them talk about caring about the person that's being corrected. And if you can do that, if you can go to that person and communicate that and, and do it in a way that is loving and kind and, and, and where you care more about them than you're caring about you, then forgiveness can, the miracle of forgiveness can be a, a reality. Now, am I the only one who feels like this is all clunky and time-consuming and elaborate and just a little bit over the top? I doubt it. I bet there's somebody out there thinking, man, it's just weird, it's just weird. I think that's why this so often gets ignored. I'm going to go get somebody else, and we're going to talk to you about what we see you becoming and who we think you could become, and this isn't going to be comfortable for any of us, but this is important for us to do. Why in the world would anybody go to these lengths to have a conversation like this? You know what immediately precedes this conversation in Matthew 18? If you have your Bible open, turn to uh, well, let's read Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won your brother over. But immediately before this, do you know what Jesus was teaching about? Let's leave verse 15. Let's go up to verse 12, because in verse 12, there's a story about a shepherd with some sheep. 
There's a shepherd, and it's the end of the day, and he's got his sheep around him, and he's getting ready to put them away for the day, and he's counting them out, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. Where's that hundredth sheep? 99, 99. Where's 100? He's not around. Now he's going to have to get somebody to watch his 99 because he's got to go off and he's got to find that sheep that is missing. That is what Jesus is talking about. Right before this conversation about confronting someone or having a conversation with somebody about uh, uh, relational reconciliation, this is what he says in verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? A lamb that wanders off is astray. And Jesus didn't bring this up to talk about livestock. He brought this up to talk about the unbelievability, unbelievable ability that we have to get lost. To wander away from home. To become astray. We all have that capability. He's expressing here the heart of God for strays. Other animals have defense mechanisms. You know, a deer can run and jump. It's majestic to watch them. It's it's awesome to watch a deer run and jump. Squirrels can climb trees. Porcupines have quills to protect them. That's their defense mechanism. I'd ask you a question. What defense mechanism does a lamb have? That's about it. Do you know the theological term for a stray lamb? Lunch. And the shepherd knows that if he doesn't go out and find that lamb that's out that has gone astray, that lamb is not going to make it. They they can't make it apart from the pack. They can't. They need their flock around them. They're helpless. On the heels of talking about stray lambs, Jesus talks about a brother or sister who has lied to you or cheated you or gossiped about you. And he says, look, I need you, the wounded person, to go out and become a part of the rescue party, to find the stray and get it back, even if it involves the complexity of including a chair or two. I want to make sure you notice again that the focus isn't on the wounded me. It's not that you wounded me. The focus is on the person who is drifting or straying, and maybe nobody's ever pointed it out to them. They may not even know the cause of destruction, that they're causing all this destruction, and that they're causing it to themselves, and they're causing it to other people. They may not know. I want to take a moment to speak to some of you who are parents or hoping to be parents someday. It is critical that you understand this morning's teaching in light of your children. Because you are not raising children, you are raising future adults. That's what you're raising. And someday, between the ages of 17 and 45, they will leave your home. They will. I promise, they will. One day they will leave home. Right? Some of you are thinking, dear God, sooner rather than later. And when they leave your home, you will inflict them on the world. That's really what you're doing. The job you did as a parent, you're inflicting that on the world. If you did a great job, congratulations, thank you for raising great kids. If you didn't do such a good job, yeah. So when you discover that your son has stolen $20 out of your purse and you get angry and you say, that was mine and you took it, it was mine. I would just say to you, no, no, no. A little less heat and a lot more light. Less heat, more light. Brett, what do you mean? 
I mean, son, listen to me. In grown-up world, if you go into a business and you steal from that business, they fire you. And I don't want you to grow up to become a man who thinks that stealing is okay because one day if you go in and you steal from a business, you will get fired and you will have to go home and you'll have to tell your wife what you've done and your kids will know and you will inflict all kinds of pain. If you lie, eventually no one is going to take you seriously and no one will trust your word. And I don't want you to be that kind of man. So I'm going to shine a light in your wrong box, and it's not coming with a lot of heat. I want it to be light. But I need you to understand, you can't be like this. Because in the future, this is going to hurt you. Forget the fact that that's my $20 and that you got into my purse to get it. This is going to hurt you if you don't correct this problem. Remember that when your daughter lies to you about where she was, who she was with, and what they did. It isn't that she lied to you, it is pumpkin. When you leave our home one day, I don't want you to lie to your husband. I don't want you to lie to your boss. I don't want you to lie to your employees. I want to raise a young lady who knows how to tell the truth. That's why we're going to discipline you. That's why we can't let this go without some kind of discipline because I'm not going to inflict on the world a young lady who thinks it's okay to lie to everybody. It's not okay, and I need to have that conversation because when you lie to people, relationships collapse. Honey, do you understand that? That boyfriend you've got, do you hope to marry him someday? If so, if you lie to him, he won't stay married to you. We want you to have strong relationships, babe. That's why we've got to punish you about this. That's why we're having this conversation. But again, the focus isn't you lied to us. It is the person you are attempting to form in your home and release to the world to be a good citizen. This is the heart of the shepherd as a parent going after a stray. You know what's worse than a 14-year-old getting caught for shoplifting? A 14-year-old who doesn't get caught shoplifting. Because if they don't get caught, pretty soon they start thinking to themselves, you know what, this program kind of works. And it accelerates and it becomes damaging. So Jesus said, brothers and sisters, when you find out they're straying, it starts with two chairs, and it may go to three or four chairs. And you might say, yeah, Brett, it doesn't matter. Sometimes you get somebody else and you say, this isn't just what I see, this is what we see, and you take the lid off and you shine your light into it, and that person might say, well, you're both wrong. You're all wrong. Now what? And Jesus says, now you're going to need 12 chairs. Don't fixate on the number, okay? But you're going to need more chairs. Look at verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. That doesn't sound good, does it? (laughs) Tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Just for the record, church probably is not the best word to be translated here. I could go into a teaching for you right now about where the word church comes from. It's it, it, somebody did us a real disservice by translating the word church many, many years ago. Um, there's a better word for this. Um, churches weren't even in existence when Jesus taught this, and, and the term Jesus uses here is really better translated, the gathering. 
Tell it to the gathering. I don't think Jesus sees a church of 500 people, and I don't think Jesus ever envisioned a church meeting of 500 people where somebody gets up and says, oh, by the way, we just want everybody to know, Claire's a gossip. I think more accurately, I don't think that's what Jesus was after. I think more accurately, what Jesus was talking about was, it was in addictive language what we would call an intervention. Several people go. Now you're talking about seven or nine or ten or twelve. And you're all shining a light into the same box. You've all brought a light and you're all shining it in in hopes that the person says, man, if there's this many people that see this, I've really got a problem. I mean, this isn't just one or two. This is, this is a lot. And Jesus says, if you've got 10 or 12 lights shining into that box, and that person says, yeah, forget you. He says, then you treat that person the way you would treat a tax collector, which begs the question, how is one supposed to treat a tax collector, right? We've been reading from Matthew all morning, um, Jesus' disciples came from a variety of different backgrounds. Some of them were fishermen. The guy that wrote what you're reading this morning was not a fisherman. He was a tax collector before he met Jesus. And, and here, here, you know, there was a day when Jesus is walking by Matthew's tax collection booth, and he said, come on, Matthew, follow me. Leave the, leave the booth and follow me. And Matthew did. And one of the core followers of Jesus, one of the 12, had been a tax collector prior to following Jesus. So if you're wondering as to how to treat a, a tax collector, Jesus gives us the example. But something you need to understand is this. Rome had conquered Israel uh, sometime before this, and when Rome wanted to, when they would decide to go to war, or if they, you know, wanted, needed more money, they would levy taxes against all the colonies. And, and the taxes that you would pay would be shipped off to the wealth of Rome to fund the, the Roman war machine. But the Romans were smart. They didn't recruit other Romans to go into Jewish colonies to tax them. They recruited Jews. And the kind of person that they would recruit to take taxes from their brethren were the kind of people who had a reputation of having given up on all their relationships. People who had burned all their bridges. People who said, you know what, I don't care. Being a tax collector was a pretty lucrative business. You could skim money off the top. You could take money underneath the table. It was a quick way to build wealth. But a person who became a tax collector was a person who said, I don't care who I hurt. I don't care how many bridges I burn. I don't care if I destroy every relationship in my life. Who cares about any of that? As long as I get my way and as I get mine, everybody else can fend for themselves. And Jesus said, just understand that there's a certain way to treat a person like that. You treat them with grace. You treat them with love. But you treat them as someone who has placed themselves outside of the gathering. And they're looking inside. You wouldn't treat that person as if everything was okay. And yet Jesus loved tax collectors. Not only did he love them, he took heat for spending time with them. Jesus pursued them. So is it possible when in this last statement Jesus says if that person is defiant and won't listen to the grievance and they say, I don't care, I don't care who I hurt, I don't care who it destroys, is it possible that Jesus is saying, okay, now that you, they're astray, and they know they are astray, they recognize it, keep your heart open, okay? Keep, make sure that there's a way for them to come back when it's time for them to come back. I refer to this in relationships as the back door. You need to leave the back door open. Sometimes we close the back door on relationships and there's no way that that relationship will ever be whole again because you've closed the door. Don't do that to people. 
always leave the door open so that people can come back in and say, you know what, I'm really sorry. When you break a finger, there are things you can do that will hurt the healing, and there are things that you can do that will help the healing. And when a relationship gets fractured, there are things that you can do that will help heal it, and there are things that you can do that will hurt it. Jesus said, care enough about what's going on in the, in, in the lives of somebody else that you would bring two chairs. Yes, it's easier to talk about people than to talk to them. Begin with two chairs. Resist the temptation to do the friends and family plan. Resist the Facebook plan. Resist the stuffing plan where you just bury it so deep that over time this lava starts to build up and then it comes through the crust and it destroys everything on its way up. Resist that. Resist taking a shovel to your backyard and digging another grave and erecting another tombstone to another failed friendship in your life. Resist that urge. Two chairs just between the two of you. Jesus said, care enough about them to begin with two chairs. Care enough about them to talk to them, not about them. When I extend an invitation to you to accept Jesus into your life and your heart, that's not some mamby-pamby thing. That's not some weakness thing. Some of the toughest people I know are people who follow Jesus really well because Jesus calls us to do really hard things. This stuff's hard to do. Following Jesus is by far the hardest thing I've ever tried to do in my life. When I extend an invitation for you to follow Jesus, I'm extending a challenge to you that is unlike any challenge you will ever face in your life. And it is not easy. It is exceptionally hard. But Jesus will make you better at life, and Jesus will make your life better. For the rest of us, this is not intuitive, is it? This is not easy. This is hard. Let's pray about that. Father, all of us in this room have relationships. All of us have done things to harm those relationships. Help us, Father, to be humble when we see what we've done. Help us to fall to our knees and go correct those problems. And if someone ever comes to us and shines a light into our wrong box, help us to not get defensive. Help us to own it. Help us to be humble. Help us to say, yes, I see that and I'm wrong. And then start to fix it. But God, sometimes we're called to go help somebody else to see. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't take delight in this. This is not something we should ever delight in. This is hard. This is, and this isn't about our being wrong. This is about our love for them. Brother or sister, I want you to see this because if this continues, this is going to hurt you and I don't want you to be hurt. And so I'm shining a light in your wrong box. Help us, Father, to do this the right way, not the wrong way. Father, would you bless the relationships in this room? Would you help us to know when to do this and how to do it? And Lord, as we leave this place, would, would we be a shining example of what relationship looks like in the community of Jesus? It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.